The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Thanks, Kira and Peter, for that, that reading. Um, and so as Look at the screen and you just pay attention to this picture as I begin this introduction this morning. It's a, it's a picture that I think depicts how some of us may feel at this, this moment in time. And because as we enter this, this season of Lent, we find ourselves again challenged by, you know, maybe you've signed up for a blog or a devotional or something that has, has challenged you to give up something for Lent. Something that the church has done for centuries um, to be known as, this season is, is known as a time where we strip down our lives in order to focus our attention upon God. We rid ourselves of things that we rely perhaps too heavily upon. And so we're challenged to give something up. I was uh, watching the, uh, a video that Redeemer posted on Instagram uh, featuring some students, and they asked such a great question that captures Lent. It's, what are you going to throw off so you can focus on him? And they in- invited students to reflect on that. But at the same time, at, at this particular Lenten season, we have uh, found ourselves in the season like no other. And in conversations with uh, people here at first, I've heard the refrain or some, some iteration of it of, I feel like I've been in Lent for the past two years. What else could I possibly throw off? And okay, okay, God, I get it. We have to focus our attention on you. And so what about this season of Lent? Because we already feel like that tree in the middle of winter stripped bare of the things that we have come to, to, to desire and to love, a lot of these things that are good. And now, in this season of Lent, ironically, is when things in our world seem to be opening up. And so how can we balance this uh, throwing things off and celebrating things that we can once again do? And that's what Pastor Ben and I have spent some time reflecting on this, 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 this Lenten season, and, and um, the, the lectionary passages actually point us in this direction. They point us to not only see that we, yes, we throw things off in this season of Lent, but that we also recognize that our salvation is right in front of us. There's this interesting duality to Lent where, yes, we throw things off, but on Sundays we come together and we celebrate. You know, if you give up chocolate for Lent, it's Sundays that you eat brownies, all of them, right? And so that's what we are focusing on in our theme. It's, it's okay, we feel barren. We feel like we're tired and we're exhausted in this Lenten season, So let's focus on celebrating. Let's focus on our salvation that's in front of us right now and grasping and grabbing hold of that on our Sundays together. And so this week, we have a passage in front of us from Philippians where Paul talks about how the Christian life provides hope for weary people, for people who feel like that barren tree 
that, that uh, was on the slide. Having hope in the midst of our uh, difficult times. And so how can we have uh, gospel hope? Well, first we have to uh, look at and pay attention to our examples. Then we have to pay attention to our direction and then our Savior. To have gospel hope, we have to look at our, our examples, our direction, and our Savior. First of all, uh, our examples. And I want to begin by quoting from uh, the great philosopher Magic Johnson, who said he captures how we all need hope. And he put it like this. He said, every kid needs a little help. A little hope and someone who believes in them. A little hope and someone who believes in them. We all need examples in our lives to have hope. This is Paul's first point in this passage. That before he talks about um, the people who are enemies of the cross, before he talks against a certain way of life, he actually props up his own life his own example, and calls the Philippians to follow in his example. And so let me just ask you a question right off the bat. Who in your life are your examples? Who do you look up to? Who do you want to be this year or next year or in five years or 20 years? Now, if you're reading the Bible or you're Maybe you're new to Paul. This, this idea of living as an example doesn't necessarily jump off the page to you. But, but if you're used to reading Paul's letters, then you know that he talks about this all the time. He talks about living, and f he, he urges Christians to live their lives in following his examples. For, for example, in 1 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthian church, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And then he goes on and says, this is actually why I sent Timothy to you. is so you would have a living and breathing example to follow. But what's challenging about uh, Paul's example in Paul's life is that it's actually not an easy one to imitate. It's not an easy one to follow. Paul did not have what we would call an easy life. In fact, he sacrificed a lot of everyday comforts that were available to him. His number one goal in life was not to be comfortable, but was to represent Jesus well. And so Paul's life is defined by Christian values like, like generosity and integrity and love and respect. And he, he lives these out above and beyond the comforts that were available to him. And I think in this way, Paul is a person that the average Hamiltonian would actually really admire. Paul is a little rough around the edges, gritty, doesn't back down, but can hang with the Torontonian lawyers. He can, he can bring it when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, rhetorically defending the Christian faith and things, but he, he's, he's a, a, a man who is willing to sacrifice a lot. His aspirations were not for career development or to get more friends. And Paul's, because Paul's life was motivated by one thing. It was motivated by Jesus. 
It may surprise you to know that Paul is actually writing this letter, which is one of the most hopeful letters that he has ever written. He wrote it from prison. And in one of the first chapters of the letter, he actually is up front with them, and he, uh, the Philippians, and he says to them, I don't know if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. Right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. He's essentially, he's saying, I may be executed. I don't know. I don't know what my future is, but I'm secure When we look at Paul, we have to also see that Paul's example is not just his example. He is also following someone. He is following Jesus. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, he urges the, the Corinthian Christians, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why is this such a central theme for Paul, the idea of following examples? I think it has to come down to this. Because Paul knows how easily the world can seep into our lives and how it can pull us away from Christian hope. The, the world tends to... The way that we live in the world is going to make it or break it for how secure we find ourselves in Christ. And Paul knows that if we let things in the world take the place of Jesus in our lives, if we begin to live more like the world than like Jesus, then we're going to build our lives on a shaky foundation. We need people, real live people, in and around us that we can look to and that can call us back to imitating Christ. We need people like Paul in our communities who say, look at me, live, live like this as I live like Jesus. This is why belonging to and participating in a community like First Hamilton is so important. We need Christian community, flesh and blood human beings to imitate, to learn from, to, to go back and forth with, to befriend. And we need also, to connect with people on a deeper level than just Sunday mornings. We need to do life with people. We need to get to know folks who are in our Christian community, how they live. Because so much of the Christian life happens behind the scenes. And yet, as those in Philippi um, learned, that we find ourselves pulled, even within a Christian community, we find ourselves pulled by the world in so many different directions. And, and we're invited to place our hope in so many different things. And so not only do we have to pay attention to the example of Christians around us who are following Jesus, we have to also pay attention to the direction that our lives are going. Paul challenges the Philippians in the people who are living as enemies of the cross. Now, we don't know exactly who these people are. There's a wide uh, variety of answers to this when you look at the commentaries. But we can gather a lot about who these people are from the, the, the verses that are around it. And what, what most commentators will agree with is that these are probably people who are in the community people that the Philippian church knows, whether they're there in that present moment or where they, whether they've walked away, they were people who knew Christ. And 
And so, and so it's important for us to recognize that we can fall into these dangers too. And so I want to point out two things about the direction that Paul warns us about. He says, uh, they live as enemies of the cross. Now, the word live in the Greek is a very practical word. And the most common way in the rest of the New Testament that it's translated is the, the word walk, to walk. To live is, is often translated to walk. And now imagine with me for a moment that you uh, are going for a walk with your family. Okay? It is, it is absolutely 100% impossible to go for a walk and not move in a particular direction. Am I right? I know this is very simple, but it's... You don't go for a walk and stand there. You have to move somewhere. Right? And so... Um, one of the biggest dangers in, in the way that Paul is warning against is that we are walking as enemies of the cross. We are walking away from the direction of the cross. What is that direction? Well, the cross, the cross is the place of, of grace, the place of love where, where Jesus pours out himself for the world. And so if we find ourselves walking away from the cross, we're walking away from grace. We become enemies of grace. I was struck by a story I heard recently where a pastor shared how easily we can actually move in this direction without realizing it. He said this. He said, recently at our church service, a well-groomed man I will call church guy tapped me on the shoulder during the singing he pointed to a man that neither of us had ever seen before, a first-time visitor. Do you see that man? Church guy asked. Can you believe that he would come into the house of God with coffee? Those dirty jeans and that ratty t-shirt. And when he passed me in the hallway, he reeked of nicotine. Pastor, what are you going to do about that man? He's a distraction to my worship. And sitting in the church pews, we can so easily find ourselves looking down at people who Jesus would look into the eyes of. We're all weary and tired. And one of the things that tired people do is look for affirmation and hope in any place that we can get it. And a quick hit of self-righteousness gives us both. It gives us affirmation that we're, we're doing okay. And it gives us hope that, that we'll pop out of it. We think so easily, maybe I'm doing a good job at this Christian thing because when I look at so-and-so, I look a lot better than they do. Or I think I'm doing okay in the midst of this pandemic because look at how this person's doing. I'm doing so much better than they are. Or I think I'm being a generous person compared to how much that person gives of their time to the church. When it's a one foot in front of the other walk away from the cross of grace, away from a place where, where we are all equal in our brokenness and our sin. Question for us is, how much are we looking around for hope? instead of looking to the cross for hope. 
How many of us come to conclusions to, with, with people or situations that we know nothing about? How many of us think that we're more worthy of being God's friends than the person who sits beside us in church? We are, we are actually naturally enemies of the cross. And we have to intentionally walk in a different direction. And so first Paul warns us about the enemies of the cross. The second thing he does is, is, is he talks about people who have set their minds on earthly things. Now, setting our minds on earthly things is the direction of self-salvation. It's the idea that we can collectively, together as humanity, solve the world's problems. Now, earthly things are not bad in themselves. The problem is not that these people are involving themselves with earthly things, but that they have set their minds on them. And so, uh, why is this dangerous? Well, Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville, sums it up so well. He puts it like this. He says, it seems that the humanist project has left the world worse, not better. Sensitive souls are left to wonder if there is any answer to the problems that plague us. After all the advances in technology and research, what are we to make of a world that still seems more tired than energized, more hurting than whole, more sick than healthy, more life-sucking than life-giving, more divided than united, and more bent towards decline than to progress? What Saul's is saying here is, why do we think we can somehow figure this out? Why do we think we can solve the world's problems on our own? All we have to do is look at the history books, and we can see that this has never worked. Why do we think that it's different now? When we set our minds on earthly things, what happens when those earthly things begin to crumble underneath us? It undermines our hope. We are just as guilty of this in the church as well as we put oftentimes too much faith in the institutional structures, the denominations, the, the things, the buildings, all of those things that are earthly things. We, those are not bad, but when we set our minds on them, then we, we, will, we will be left alone eventually when things fall apart. And so Paul points us in a different direction. He points us to something that we could never earn, never achieve, never deserve, and that's absolutely free and accessible. Paul says that the reason that we have hope in this world as weary people is because our citizenship is not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship means two things for us. First, it means that it's completely a free gift. And it has a lot of benefits to it. How do we become a citizen of heaven? Well, you know, if you want to become a citizen of a country, you have to go through the rigorous process of doing that. I've never had to go through that process, thank the Lord, but I've heard from people that it's, it's incredibly meticulous, time-consuming, and it can be very hard to actually achieve. 
How do we become citizens of heaven? We receive the gift from Jesus. It's not something that we have to work for or earn. It's only through the cross. You see, when Jesus came, he came to defeat the powers of sin and death once and for all. And on the cross, he was, that was his enthronement as, as the king of the world. That's when he defeated the powers of sin and death and healed the relationship between us and God so that we could receive the blessing of heavenly citizenship, that we could participate in the resurrection of all things, that we could receive from him a transformed body when he comes again. All of these things come true in the cross. Paul talks about this. He says, We eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. This is our hope. And it's hope for the weary. Because it means for us that whether we're single or married or young or old or retired or working or strong or weak, that Jesus comes to you and gives you hope that's, that outside of your abilities, outside of, your, uh, outside of, of you, and, and tells you that you belong to heaven by sheer grace. But there's another side of this. Paul's writing to a group of people who, who understand how citizenship works. Rome was built around citizenship. There was, there was a lot of benefits to being a Roman citizen. But it also came with a lot of responsibilities. And, and the, town, the town of Philippi was a, a group of, you know, it was, a, it was a very nationalistic city filled with a lot of retired military people. And so they would have understood the responsibility that also comes with citizenship. It's not just about the benefits. There's also something that's asked of each citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, you would have known that, yeah, sure, we get a lot of benefits. They had health care back then. They had, you know, um, the government would protect them. There was, there was all sorts of benefits to being a Roman citizen. But you were expected, wherever you went, to represent the values of Rome. You were expected to represent the Roman emperor, Caesar, wherever you went. You were actually, as a citizen, sent from Rome into the world to, to represent the values of Rome. Paul knows this, and he is playing on this when he talks about citizenship in heaven. Because just like those in Rome, we are citizens of heaven that have been sent into this world to live as heaven's ambassadors, to represent heaven well, to represent heaven's values in the world, we have responsibilities too. We have been called and equipped by Jesus to live the values of heaven in our daily lives. If you're an artist or a writer, how do you live the values of heaven? 
If you're a single person, how has God called you and gifted you to be a blessing to those around you as, as a citizen of heaven in a unique way? There's, we, we are all created unique and different, and we're all in different life stages, which provides us so many different opportunities to be able to represent heaven. As a senior, how do you see yourself living out the value of heaven? What does it mean at your stage of life to live as a citizen of heaven right now? As weary people, the gospel provides us a certain hope of future glory through the cross of Jesus Christ, being a citizen of heaven, and also an immediate call an immediate responsibility that we have been equipped to do, and that is to represent heaven well. I'll go back to that Magic Johnson quote that I said at the beginning. You know, all, all a kid needs is a little help, a little hope and someone who believes in them. And in Jesus, we have both. As weary people, you know, we're tired. We've been through a lot over the past few years. And so we can receive this and let it sink into our bones that we know we don't have to work for our citizenship. We don't have to work for our hope. We receive that. And now we can let our lives respond in gratitude to what Jesus has given to us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for giving us a hope that, that is outside of this world, a hope that, that, um, that you will come again, that you will make all things new. In the meantime, God, by your Spirit, would you help us to um, represent you well, that we may be citizens of heaven in the present moment where we live. God, as we think of the examples in our lives, help us to remember that, that uh, none of us are perfect examples, but we are living examples of you. Each of us changed by grace in a different way. God, help us to, um, to see that and to, to uh, remember um, to live our lives as examples for others, too. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.